0: Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in over the course of the entire summer on the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, Those are the psalms between Psalm 120 and 134 that made up the songs that Israel sang that they prayed as they journeyed to Jerusalem on their pilgrimage uh, to go to worship God. And so we've been looking at these psalms as a kind of a prayer book for us to help us understand our journey with Christ and to God, to dwell with him. You know, this is, uh, if you're new with us over the past few weeks, my name is Dave, and I do work here. I, I preach here from time to time. Um, I, uh, I've, uh, this is, I've been out of the pulpit for like five weeks. And let me, uh, let me just say to the few of you that are here, to my brother Jonathan, who preached uh, a couple times for me, for Jeff. Jeff. Uh, For Willie, who fills in so often and ably from the pulpit, as well as others who've helped. Uh, It is such an incredible gift to be able to come up for air a little bit and get some rest. Um, To actually read the Bible and pray without, you know, uh, thinking, how am I going to, you know, get some material out of this someday? Um, But to just rest and to to be with God, to be with my family. So it's been a wonderful gift. Thank you, brothers, who made part of it possible. So I appreciate it very much. And so today we will find out if preaching is like riding a bike, right? If you can uh, just... Get back on. So, uh, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our
1: reading today is Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will, I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I, pre- I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love.
0: You can be seated. The background for this psalm, this psalm is essentially a poetic uh, representation of a story that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7. David, uh, now king of Israel, has settled in Jerusalem. He's got a, a new capital for this new nation. He's built a palace fit for a king, fit for any of the kings of the ancient Near Eastern world. You know, the road to this point for David has been brutal. He's now resting secure in a palace, but it wasn't always that way. He was called uh, to be king from a position as a shepherd. And then he became something of a young war hero in his victory over Goliath. But then he found himself hunted and haunted uh, by the current king of Israel who developed a murderous rage for David. And so for chapters, we've seen David uh, running and hiding in caves, trying to escape the wrath of King Saul. And now finally, after all of that, God has established him. He's overthrown Saul. He's placed him in a palace. And as David lays his head on his bed in his own palace and his own capital, he ought to be at rest. He ought to be at a place of having reached the pinnacle Having reached the top of this ladder, this journey that he was on, he should be at a place where he can rest securely. But David can't rest. When we find David there lying on his bed, he is at anything but rest. The way that the psalm recounts it. David says in verse 3, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. David has it all. He has everything that he, that he likely thought that he ever wanted, the end of this long and treacherous journey. And yet he's restless because though he has a place, though he has a house, there is no place for God. There's no place that God can dwell and that he can dwell with God in communion. There's no place that his people can come and meet with God to dwell with God. And so David is learning, uh, as so many have who finally get what they've always thought that they most needed, that without communion with God, without a place to dwell with God, to know that you're loved by God and to rest with God, it's ultimately empty. It's ultimately somewhat meaningless. And so David vows, he swears, I won't rest until God and I can rest together, until there's a place here in this place where me and my people can come and meet with God. He's learning what St. Augustine once famously prayed, O Lord, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. It's the same restless longing for God that probably stirred these pilgrims that are singing these songs to leave their homes and to go and meet with God. That restless desire to be with God, to dwell with God, to experience the presence of God. It's the same thing that motivates us even as we gather here for worship. right? That's that's why we're here, isn't it? To, to, To be in the presence of God. Right, that's why any of us get up on a Sunday morning. Get up, you know. We'd rather sleep in. It's one of our only days off. It's one of the reasons we fight the kids to get them here, get them dressed. Is because we want to be in the presence of God. Right? It's not the preaching. Right? It's not even the prayers or the hymns or even the sacraments. Those things are all a means to a very good end of being in the presence of God. And so we get up. Maybe some of you, against your better judgment. Right? Some of you had to overcome immense amounts of doubt that anything ultimately really happens when you get to church. You listen to some guy talk for a while, you sing some songs, uh, you, you come to the table. But for many of us, it's, we battle that unbelief that we're just going through the motions, that there's nothing really there. There's no presence there at the center of it. And yet we long. We long enough for some of us to, to push through those doubts, push through those questions, and to show up to brush our teeth, throw on a decent-looking shirt, and show up for church. Hoping beyond hope that we taste something of the presence of God and that we find there his welcome and his love and his embrace. And so we come seeking God. And now David, confronted with this longing for God's presence, he does what most of us do. He does what I think is the the fundamental first human instinct when we recognize that we long for God's presence, is that he starts making promises to God. He looks first to his own commitment, his ability to get to God's presence and to get God's presence to the world. And so what does he do? He says, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes. He starts making vows to God. God, I'm going to do it. I'm going to build you a temple. I'm going to set up a place where you can live, right? And I think this is the fundamental first place that we go when we recognize that we long for God. We think, okay, what can I do to get to God? What can I do to give myself a secure place in God's presence? And so we start making promises. God, if you show up, if you answer this prayer, if you show yourself to be real to me, I promise you I'll never do blank again. Whatever it is. I promise you I'll, get, I'll start giving my money. I promise you I'll get better. Right? How many, by this point in your life, how many promises have you made to God? If you're like me, you've made more promises than you can remember to God. Uh, most of them lie broken somewhere so far back in my memory I can't even remember them ranging back from middle school prayers for exams, uh, through anxious prayers that a girl say yes on a first date, uh, through prayers for jobs, through prayers for change, all of these promises that we heap up, usually they operate by the same logic. God, I promise I'm going to do this and you be present. If I do this, then will you be in my life, be in my home, Be a presence that I can rest in. And so in this famous scene in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, there's there's a marvelous little play on words. David says to God, I am going to build you a house. And God says to David, no, no, no. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty, a family. And through your family, through your dynasty, I am going to bring the one, the true son of David, who will ultimately bring my presence to you, to your people, and indeed, uh, one day to the whole world. I'll read that little promise from God from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Picking up at the end of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What David is learning, what we're learning, and overhearing this conversation, this covenant, right? That's what God is doing here. He's entering into a covenant with David, a promise that he will be faithful to David and to his offsprings, that he he will do what he's saying that he'll do, that he will build this dynasty through which he's going to save the world. What we overhear in the midst of this story is that if we are going to dwell with God, if we are going to live in God's presence and communion with him, it's going to have to come from God's commitment to us, not out of our commitment to God. Out of God's desire for us, Not out of our desire for God. Out of God's oath and promise to us. Not out of our oaths and promises to God. Look in the psalm at the way that the the language of the psalm shifts. From verses 3 and 4 where David's saying, I will not enter my house. I will not give sleep to my eyes until I find a place for the Lord. To verse 11 when God speaks. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. Right, and then looking back, uh, looking down at verse 13. For he, the Lord, has desired it for his dwelling place. That our life with God is born out of the desire of God, the commitment of God, the promise of God. That only God can give us his presence. Only God can help us to dwell securely there. One commentator, uh, Old Testament theologian named Stephen Dimster. Puts, this, puts it to this way, talking about uh, Yahweh's promise to David to work through his sons to bring salvation to the world. He says, "From this one location in world geography, and this one person in world genealogy will flow blessing to the entire world and all of its inhabitants. So from Jerusalem, through David's line will, th- will flow blessing for all of the people of the world. And so what we're going to look at in this psalm is that if you long for God's presence, if you long to dwell with God, only Jesus, only Jesus can give you God's presence. Only Jesus has the power to bring us into God's presence and to give us a secure place there. And only Jesus has the power ultimately to cause God's presence To gather in the entire world. To one day cover the world as the waters cover the sea. And so first, let's look at how only Jesus can bring us into God's presence. So David's plan for bringing God's presence to his people starts with bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and to build a house for it there. The ark is mentioned a couple of different times. First in verse 7, where the footstool is referred to, we'll talk about that. It's a part of the ark. And then verse 8, arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. David knew that if God was to take up residence with his people, that it meant getting the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem, that it would be, uh, that it would set there and have a secure place there. You know, this is somewhat strange to us. I'm asked on a regular basis, usually by one of my children, where does God live, right? That's a, that's a question that kids start to ask. You, you talk to them about God. They eventually ask, where, where does God live? And usually I say something like, well, he lives in heaven, which usually the question is, then, well, where's heaven, right? Is that just above the clouds? Where is that? And so you go, well, it's a it's, this other, it's God's place. It's his work. You know. So you go into this thing that starts to get a little bit beyond the mind of a five-year-old. You say something like, well, Jesus lives everywhere. God lives everywhere. He's omnipresent. And of course, that's true. You, you avoid the use of the term omnipresent uh, with a five-year-old. But we do confess that God is everywhere, right? That he fills all things that were never far from him. It's strange to us that if you asked an Israelite, where does God dwell, they could give you an address. Uh, if they were near the Ark of the Covenant, they could say, oh, he's over there. He's, he lives over there on that box. Now, Israel did not believe that God was in the box. right? They, 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 they had a theology of omnipresence, every bit as rich as ours. Right, they knew that they didn't have to go to the Ark of the Covenant to pray. They knew that God could hear their prayers, whether they were in exile or in Jerusalem. They knew that no place that they went or wandered escaped God's notice, that they couldn't hide from Him. Right, They knew truly that God was everywhere, that He went with them wherever they went. And yet they also knew that in a special way, God chose to dwell. He chose to make His special presence real and visceral, invisible even, there over the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle and then eventually in the temple when it's built later. That God's presence, though he's everywhere, he was specially somewhere. Right? And I think we know that to be true, right? That we can say, well, God is everywhere. Amen. And yet at, the time, at times he feels so absent from us. At times we say he's everywhere and yet he feels nowhere. It feels as though we can't experience or know or taste his presence. And so for Israel, they knew that there was this one place, there was this one special place that they could go and be with God and to see God and to know God, receive his mercy and offer their prayers and their sacrifices. And yet, when David decides to go and get the ark, it has been all but lost. Verse 6. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. Ephrathah is another word for the the area around Bethlehem. So it's not in Jerusalem. It's out in the hill country, outside of Jerusalem. We found it in the fields of Ja'ar. We don't know exactly where Ja'ar is, uh, but the Hebrew basically means in the sticks, uh, out there in in the bush. So basically, this tells us something about what the spiritual climate of God's people was like at the time under Saul. Right, that the ark of God's covenant, the place of his special blessing, was so forgotten and lost Oh yeah, that when, when, when David went to get it, he heard reports of, yeah, it's somewhere. I think we left it near Bethlehem. Um, I, think it's, I think it's hanging out back in the bushes somewhere. And David says, no, we've got to go and get it. We've got to go and bring the ark into Jerusalem. The two words that are used for the ark here, the first is his footstool. Uh, this is an image... Uh, The the footstool, uh, sometimes called the footstool, other times called the mercy seat, was this separate piece of furniture that went over the top of the ark. So the ark was essentially a box. And over top of it went this cover. And over the cover were two angels facing each other with their wings touching. And so the idea, when it's called his footstool, the idea is that God sat enthroned on the wings of the angels, that God sat on on the throne of the cherubs, And that his feet then touched the top of his footstool. And so this was, uh, in a real way, the throne of Israel's king, the throne of their God. When they left, uh, all through their wilderness wanderings, they took the ark up with them in the front. As they went through the conquest of Canaan, the ark went first into battle ahead of them. That just like a king would ride out into battle in front of one of their neighbors... This is a way of them saying, no, God is our king. Yahweh is our king. It's his power, it's his blessing that guarantees our success and our victory. And so there at the top was the footstool with the throne where God sat as their king. And then inside the box, some of the most precious things in Israel's life were placed. The first things that were in the box were the tablets of the law. These are the tablets that contained the Ten Commandments. And so they were placed there, inside the ark. That's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. Because it symbolized, yes, this is God's presence. God is with you. He's present to you. But he also demands. He, he demands loyalty from you. He demands obedience from you. That to live in covenant with God means to live according to his law. It means to live uh, obediently to him. And then we learn in Hebrews that there were two other things in the Ark of the Covenant. One was a jar of manna. That's a jar of the miraculous bread that God rained down on his people through their wilderness journeys. And so they placed some of that, which uh, the, the manna actually, if it wasn't gathered and consumed the day of, rotted and disappeared. But here was this jar that God preserved and that was placed in the ark as a reminder that God provides for his people, that God always had provided and always would provide for his people. And then there also in in the ark was Aaron's staff that had been caused to miraculously bud, so a a stick of wood that miraculously bloomed. And it was there, there's this, uh, we won't go there, there's a story of some rival priests coming to rival Aaron, who was the true first priest of Israel. And God told him to throw down his staff, and when he did, it bloomed, and it vindicated that Aaron was the true priest, and that God would provide priests for his people. And so, really, there in the ark was Israel's religious life in miniature. Everything that they believed about their covenant with God was there in the ark. God's presence in his rule, his provision for them, that he was a father who took care of them, the loyalty they owed him through obedience to the law. But then also the acknowledgement that their obedience would always be imperfect, that they were gonna be in the need they were gonna be in need of a priest of priests to make sacrifices for them, to bring the the blood of the sacrifices to the footstool, to acknowledge that, God, we fall short of your covenant. We fall short of what you ask of us. And so there, in miniature, is Israel's relationship with God. And when David finds it, it's stuck in a thicket somewhere in the hills outside of Bethlehem. And so he goes and he gets it. And he says, if I want to have a true capital for God's people, I need God's presence in the place, so we're going to go and get it. So 2 Samuel 6, they send out a group. They get the ark, and they start bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And there's a man, a man named Yuza, who's one of the two men given oversight of bringing the ark to Jerusalem. Right? He's a priest. This is a, this is a fairly uh, big job. Right? To, be, to be one of the priests tasked with bringing the ark, to bring God's presence into Jerusalem. And God had given very specific instructions for the way the ark was meant to travel. Right? You couldn't just throw it in the trunk of your car and go. There, was, there, was, uh, there were rules around how this was supposed to happen. It was supposed to happen on the shoulders of priests, carried by sticks, by hand. And Uzzah, like uh, many of us, so that seems like a that that seems like a backbreaking and difficult way to transport an ark. I know what we'll do. We will build a, I'm going to get an ox cart. When God said carry on sticks, he must he must not have known about carts and animals. So I'm going to put it on an, a, a cart and we'll walk alongside it to make sure nothing happens to it and we'll go to Jerusalem. And as they're on their way to Jerusalem, the the ox cart starts to wobble. The ark starts to starts to tip. And user reaches out his hand to grab it, to steady it, and he dies on the spot. Dies instantly, right there. Now, why? Because God's presence is both a blessing and it's a problem. Uh, it historically has been a problem for God's people. Je- going all the way back to Adam. Because God's presence is a holy presence. God's presence is a presence that cannot tolerate sin and corruption being in its midst. He is so completely and utterly holy that when sinners come into contact with a holy God, they they go the way of Uzzah. They, They drop dead. Right When Adam and Eve break God's law, that living intimacy that they had in Eden with God is broken and they're sent into exile. Right? That God's presence is a holy presence. Now, use's sin seems relatively minor. Right? If you think about the murderers and the adulterers and, shoot, I think of some of the stuff I've done today, you know, reaching out to keep God's ark from falling seems actually kind of a good thing. Right? Yeah, he should. Maybe he shouldn't have done the ox cart, but once it was falling, what do you want him to do? And it uses such a such a picture of so many of us, where we believe ultimately that God will overlook our small transgressions. Right? Yeah, I'm not perfect. Yeah, I do a few little things wrong here and there, but you know what? Me and me and the man upstairs we're good. We've got an understanding. I do more good than bad. I help more people than I hurt. And so at the end of the day, me and God, we're we're good. And yet this picture shows us that the real, if you want to be in the presence, the real presence of God, you are not good. Right, yeah, you you can look at your life and then look at some of your neighbors and think that you shape up all right as it comes to holiness. Right, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than them. But ultimately what matters isn't how you stack up to them. It's how you stand in the presence of a holy God. A God who is utterly without sin or corruption. How you stand up with a holy God. And so David learns as he brings God's presence into Jerusalem that this is a problem. That We've got to do it the right way. So he brings the ark in finally in the right way. And then eventually Solomon, his son, does build a temple. Builds a temple for God's ark. And then actually, uh, we won't look at it now, but you can read it in Second Chronicles chapter 6 uh, through, the, through the beginning of chapter 7. This long prayer of dedication that Solomon offers for the temple. He actually uses the words of verses uh, 8 through 10. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You and the ark of your might, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And then right there in in, in the very next verses, fire from heaven comes and it fills the temple and God dwells in the temple. And it's one of those high watermarks of the Bible. This is the way it's supposed to be. God's man, God's king is on the throne. His presence is in the temple. The people are at worship. This is the way that God designed it to be. And it lasts literally like a page and a half of your Bible. Uh, Do you have a good king in Israel? His presence in the temple and an obedient people. By the end of Solomon's life, he's filled up his palace with wives uh, by the hundreds. He's just as rich as any of the other kings, more so than, than any of his rivals. His sons split the kingdom, and for generations after him, the monarchy is just in disarray. You get a few decent kings, most of them are pretty terrible. The people themselves begin to wander, not just into occasionally breaking the law, but into deep idolatry and rebellion. Until finally, in Ezekiel, just as the presence of God had filled the temple, the presence of God, like he hit rewind on that tape, just goes out in reverse. Moves out of the temple, out of Jerusalem, away from his people. He said, my people have abandoned me, and they've lost my presence. They've lost me. And for most of Israel's history, this psalm would have been read mostly as nostalgic memories of the way things used to be and frustrated hopes about the way they thought it would be. And maybe one day again, God will show himself faithful to his promise. His presence will be in his temple. We will dwell with God. We will be forgiven. We will be restored. Maybe one day. Because God does not give up on his plan to dwell with his people. Right just as he didn't give up when he sent Adam and Eve into exile from the garden but pursued them over and over again pursued his people. So even when Israel's faith faithless God continues to pursue. Until one day sending Jesus who John in John chapter 1 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelled there literally is tabernacled. Just as he was in the ark and in the tabernacle and his presence was there, so now he's come in the flesh and blood of Jesus of Nazareth. He's come as the ark in human form, the very presence and glory of God to live among us. Right, Every bit of the ark is fully fulfilled in Christ. Right, John also goes on to tell us that Jesus uh, himself said he's the bread from heaven, right? The manna that was in the ark, that's Jesus. He is the bread from heaven that shows us that God provides not only for our uh, temporal needs, but for our deepest spiritual longings and needs. He's our bread from heaven, right? He is the fulfillment of the law in every way that we have broken the law, that we have broken every one of those 10 commandments. Jesus kept them perfectly and perpetually. For us. Just as Aaron's staff showed that he was the true high priest, the one who could bring grace and mercy and reconciliation through the sacrificial system. Jesus, Hebrews tells us, is our great high priest. The one not through through sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice brings us to God, but the one who through his own personal sacrifice sprinkled the the footstool of God forever once and for all with his own blood and who lives always to make a way for us to come into God's presence. Right, we think it's strange uh, that in those days, if you asked an Israelite where God lived, they could point to an ark and say, over there. And yet we still, Christians, when we say, where does God live? Yes, we can say he lives everywhere. But we can point to a man to a person, and say, where does God live? God lives in Christ. And we can search for him everywhere else, and we have. right. Human beings search for God everywhere. We search for him in the mountains. We search for him in places that are beautiful. We search for him in the temples we build. And yet if you want to know the special presence of God, the place where you and God can commune in love and acceptance and in mercy, it's only found in one place, and the place is the person of Jesus Christ. So that's good news that we can stop looking for him. We can stop our search. We can stop our quest. And we can rest in the certain knowledge that God has come near to us in Christ. And if we place our faith in him, then we are secure in his presence. And that is good news. And it's good news not only for us, it's good news for the entire world. Because Jesus came not just so that we as individuals could come into God's presence, but he came ultimately to extend the presence of God over the entire world, embracing every corner of this broken world. Look at God's promise to David, just the last three verses of our psalm. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. Speaking of David's son, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. In the Gospel of Luke, when Luke begins his story of of Jesus' birth, Gabriel goes and announces Jesus' birth to Mary. He doesn't say to Mary, you're pregnant, I know that's, that's a surprise, but you're pregnant, it's God's child, but he's, the, the baby in your belly is going to found a new religion. That's not what he says. He doesn't even say that the, the baby in your belly is going to be a sacrificial lamb and he's going to die and then people will go to heaven. That's not what he says. He says the baby in your belly will sit on his father David's throne forever. That's a strange thing to associate with what somebody we think of as a religious leader or a teacher. What Gabriel's saying is, you know, he's the king. He's come as the long-awaited king of Israel and the long-awaited king of the entire world. The king who's going to set every broken way straight. He's going to right every injustice. He's going to cause every sword to be beaten into a plowshare. He's going to bring peace and justice to the entire world. That's what your baby's going to do. In the promise to David about his great-great-great-great-great-grandson here is that he will make a horn to sprout. The horn was a symbol of strength and power. That his son was going to be one clothed in strength and power. And we see that in Jesus' life, don't we? His power over sickness. His power over the, the forces of evil, the demonic. His power even over the forces of nature when he calms the storm. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. A lamp is a symbol of wisdom. We see that in Jesus' teaching and in his parables, the way that he he taught us the way to God, the way to live our lives in in harmony and communion with God. He came as a bringer of wisdom. And then finally, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. He is going to defeat all of God's enemies all of the enemies of sin and sickness and sorrow, even the last enemy of all, death itself, Jesus will defeat. They will be clothed in shame and sent away packing from this world of God's. And Jesus will restore the world and us to the way that it's meant to be. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. And he's doing that even now. You know how he's doing it? This this may be the most shocking part of all. He's doing it through us. He's doing it in us and through us, right? If I I was the omnipotent and omnipresent God of the universe, I might have come up with a more efficient plan, a better-looking group of people uh, than you and me. But look at what what, what God says here in verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He's chosen the church. 1 Peter 2 tells us that we are being built up as living stones into a new temple, He's chosen us, He's chosen Zion, and He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is His resting place forever. Here He will dwell, for He has desired it. Here He will abundantly provide for our needs and the needs of the poor. Here He will clothe us with salvation and fill us with joy. Here in the church, we are the answer to the question, Is God present in His world? Is God present in His world? Yes, he's present through Jesus and he's present in us. That's the reason that we do literally everything we do as a church is to say to the world, God is present. He's alive and he's active and he's real, right? That's why in a few weeks we're going to throw a back-to-school party for the kids of this neighborhood and buy them school supplies and then fill up a backpack with them and then give them cotton candy and balloon animals and bounce houses, Right? It's not because we think kids need more sugar. Uh, it's not because we want to feel good about ourselves because we did something good for kids in a hard school. That is not why we do that. We do that because we and the churches around us want to say to this neighborhood that so many people in our city would say is God forsaken, that it is God embraced, that God is present and he is here and he's for them. That's the reason we are going to do that. When our tutors uh, go into the halls of Pinedale Elementary School, it is not so that they can check a community service box for their jobs or their schools. It's so that they can go to communicate to kids, your Father, your God is present and He's for you and He loves you. When we get together to worship, when we gather around this table, we do so as a testimony both to ourselves because we need to be reminded that God is not absent from us but that he's present here giving himself to us and as a witness to our world that God is real and he's found in Christ and he's not against you. He is for you and there's a way for you and there's a way for us to dwell with him here in this world and forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that we do not have to wonder whether or not you are present to us. We don't have to wonder if we are looking in the right place for you, that you have come near to us in Jesus, that you have embraced us in your love, you have drawn us into your presence, and that there we dwell securely in your arms. Lord Jesus, help us to rest in the sure and certain knowledge that because of the sacrifice you made on the cross, that you are for us and you love us, And help us to be a foretaste and a promise of that presence to our city, to our neighborhood, and even to our world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.